Hello everyone, it's Bavini from Visualize with Bavini and welcome to the third installment of the podcast. Today we'll be hearing from a range of speakers who will be sharing a patient pathway as it were. We'll be starting off um, speaking to Jayshree who discuss what kind of, you know, what you'd typically expect from visiting an optician. Um, the various um, O words and getting the terminology correct. We'll speak to a genetic counsellor, we'll speak to a specialist consultant and the role of an ECLO and the service that a Friends of Moorfield volunteer provides. So if you haven't been able to access any of the support or would like to know more about what a genetic counsellor is and if you're entitled to it, then this is the podcast for you. Hope you enjoy it. So today we're going to speak to Jayshree Basani, who's a dispensing optician, first of all, um, and, you know, just talk about the colleagues that she works with, um, you know, when you go to visit an optician and clarify some of the terminology between an optometrist um, and what their role is. So if someone is noticing um, a deterioration in their sight, perhaps noticing something different, um, the first thing you know you you would typically do is book an appointment with your um, optician. Um, so when you've made that appointment, um, you know you'd first of all um, go attend, and uh, you'd probably be seen by someone who um, tests the back of your eyes and maybe checks your pressure. So we'll speak to Jayshree, who will um, just basically go through a typical visit and a journey of when you go to see an optician. So hi, Jayshree, thanks for coming on the podcast and um, helping our listeners sort of clarify uh, the process. Um, so what would typically happen, you know, just for me example, if I booked an appointment, who would I see first? Hi, Vivini. It's, uh, it's good to be on the podcast. Thanks for asking me on. Okay, so you come to the optician, okay, and uh, you, you make an appointment and you turn up and hopefully when you come to the optician, it's important to uh, remember certain things, bring your glasses, bring all your glasses, bring your, uh, if you're on your medication, because that also makes a difference. And I'll explain why later. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, normally what happens is that you would be seen by the receptionist. Okay. But it could be an optical assistant, or it could be somebody like me who's a dispensing optician. So a dispensing optician is the person that doesn't actually test your eyes, but when you come out of the room, and you come out with a prescription, I'm the sort of person that will help you choose the glasses, talk about the lenses, talk about any extra sort of optical aids like a low vision aid, talk about contact lenses. So if you do further study as a dispensing optician, uh, you can become qualified as a contact lens optician, so you can advise and fit contact lenses. So any optical aid is, is what a dispensing optician will do and help you out with. The person that tests your eyes is the optometrist, okay? And the people that you see that do all the extra tests, like the field test or the puff of air test that tests the pressure in your eye, that can be done by a dispensing optician. It can be done by a, a person who's doing the screening side of things. It could be done by the receptionist, okay? And the idea is that, that they are saving the optometrist time by doing those tests. Uh, and it means that the optometrist gets more time to spend with you to, to make sure that the prescription is correct, okay? and make sure that the health of your eyes is good. So they're checking the front of your eye, the middle of your eye, and the back of your eye for any conditions like diabetes, glaucoma, okay, those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. So it's important that you, you sort of, you know, see the right people, 
but there are two different roles, if you like. An optometrist actually tests the eyes. They're the people that can refer also. But, and, and they can dispense glasses too. They can help with choosing the frames and all that side of things. But what we tend to do is, is all of the other bits, if you like. And the important thing to remember is that an optometrist can test your eyes, but the person helping you make the glasses is also important because it's the glasses that you're going to wear at the end. They're the ones that are actually going to help you see better. Does that make sense? Please? Yeah, no, it does. Yeah. Fantastic. So that's the difference between the two there. Yeah, no, thank you. Um, and you mentioned that, you know, from an eye test, you can actually pick up things like um, blood pressure and diabetes. Yeah. That's quite yeah. fascinating. I mean, um, what kind of things do they sort of look out for? Like what, what can they sort of see in your eyes that can sort of indicate for them to get checked out by a GP then? Yeah, so it's interesting but if you think about it, okay, the eye is the only place in the whole body that you can actually see the blood vessels live wow. without cutting yourself, without actually cutting your skin. Wow. Okay? They can actually see in your eye live the, the blood cell pumping. So that's why you can tell if there is any diabetes, if, if the vessels are being a bit constricted. That's why you can tell if there's, if there's uh, you know, any problems in that side of things. The, the puffer test, you know, people are very very worried about having that that test done but that actually tests the pressure of your eye okay and with things like a condition called glaucoma if it's not picked up early and not taken care of that can affect your your vision your peripheral vision the vision at the side not the central vision generally but the vision at the side and if that happens then basically you know you can lose your sight so it's important that, that the eye actually sees all the early signs of these sorts of things coming through, okay? Mm. And it's important you have the eye examination to check the health of your eyes and to detect for any eye conditions. Because if we can catch these things early, then it's important that they get seen and, and, and sorted out early rather than wait until it's too late. Yeah, definitely. So it's quite important to get your eyes checked regularly. Um, yeah. What, yeah. What, what, I mean, what's the recommendation that you know, people are advised to get their check, eyes checked? Yeah, so normally it's every two years. Certain mm -hmm. groups would need it more frequently, okay? If you have a, a family history of eye conditions, then you might need to go more frequently. If you're age over 40, then uh, also it's worth, worth, you know, thinking about a little bit more because, you know, you, you, you find that you, it's harder to read. You're finding it difficult to read um, because the, the lens loses a little bit of elasticity in your eye, mm -hmm. okay? And that's natural. It happens to everyone. Um, if you have diabetes, you can have eye, an eye examination is free on the NHS. If you have glaucoma, family history of glaucoma, again, free on the NHS. Okay. Mm -hmm. Children, for example, under 16 and under 19 full-time education, eye examination is free. So all these people, okay, are all eligible for a free eye examination. If you're, cl if you're claiming um, benefits like job seekers allowance, again, free. So it's important to try and, you know, understand people worry about the costs of eye examinations and, and glasses, and there are vouchers for glasses too. So yeah. if you are on low income or anything like that, then there is help available. It's important that that shouldn't be a barrier to you going to have an eye examination. Yeah, definitely. Um, thank you, Jayshree, for clarifying that, clearing that up. And as we've heard, it's really important to get your eyes checked regularly. Um, even if you don't suspect that you're having underlying eye conditions, but just to check the health, um, to check if there's anything else like diabetes or um, high or low blood pressure. So it's not just, you know, 
uh, an appointment that you think you can miss for years and years actually it's quite important so um, folks please do get your eyes checked regularly and like Jayshree's advice you know some people are actually eligible for free eye test um, thank you Jayshree for your time and I'm sure we'll hear from you in a future podcast to um, explain further and um, have different conversations um, about um, your work and um, other areas of it so thank you so much for coming on today and sharing um, with uh, our listeners brilliant it's been great for me and uh, the other thing is if you do have anything wrong with your, with your eyes which can't be corrected by glasses or contact lenses okay mm-hmm. then you would get referred on to an ophthalmologist right. who's an eye doctor yeah. okay so that's the that's the third o if you like yeah. optometrist ophthalmologist optician okay so there you are that's the three o's as it is there's one more o should i do it or not yeah go on <laughs> orthoptist so an orthoptist is a person that's seen in the hospital uh, they see you in the hospital and they work with ophthalmologists and they are basically responsible if you have a problem with the muscles in your eyes you know when your eyes work together yeah your eyes work together and they're nice and balanced they see better if you have problems with the muscles in your eyes the way that your eyes move okay mm-hmm. then you see the orthoptist and again they work with the ophthalmologists in the hospital so again if you have problems with that then they will be referred there as well fantastic jayshree that's really good to know um and you also said you had two further points that you wanted to add um yeah feel free to share them now so there are two more categories uh, that are important to mention and that is people who have a complex prescription i.e quite high high prescription okay they are also entitled to a free eye examination and also people are registered as partially sighted or blind okay severely sight impaired or sight impaired and that's important people with low vision often think that they don't need to go for an eye examination uh, when it's really important that they still go through and, and see the optometrist there may be other things going on uh, other than their you know the condition they have so it's really important to go So next, we're going to speak to Professor Maria Musaji, who's a consultant at Moorfields. So we've just heard from Jayshree, um, who said that if they do detect some um, sort of abnormality in your vision or they suspect something, you would get referred to um, an eye clinic. And you may typically see someone like Maria, but she's also going to, you know, she wears many hats and she's also going to discuss, you know, a specialised approach. So Maria, hello, welcome. Um, Thank you for coming on the podcast today. And would you like to introduce yourself? Thanks, Bavini. Thank you very much for inviting me to speak today. So, yes. Um, I, as you mentioned, I'm a consultant ophthalmologist at Moorfield Eye Hospital and Great Ormond Street Hospital for Children, and I specialise in genetic eye disease. I'm also a professor of molecular ophthalmology, and I have a research lab at UCL Institute of Ophthalmology and the Francis Crick Institute in London, and that's where we do quite a bit of research trying to develop treatments for patients with inherited retinal diseases and other genetic eye diseases. Right, yeah, um, that's quite interesting. You're very busy, aren't you? <laughs> um, so if a patient was typically referred, um, would they come to you straight away or would they be then secondly referred to you? Who would they first initially come and see? Well, it really depends on the kind of reach of the opticians and the GPs. So if an optician or a GP has picked up that this may be an inherited uh, disease, then a referral may come straight to me. 
that in general, most referrals are going to go to general ophthalmologists. And if it involves the back of the eye, the light sensitive layer called the retina, then the referral is likely to go to a specialist in medical retina. And so when the patient gets to the hospital, they will obviously see the doctors um, who will take a detailed history from them. And that will include asking them about their symptoms. So for example, um, if we're talking about patients with potentially inherited retinal diseases, then the doctors would inquire about if they'd had any difficulties with their night vision, um, if they were particularly light sensitive in, in bright conditions, if it took them a lot of time coming in from the outside indoors, does it take them a long time to adapt to that change of, of condition of light? If their field of vision has been affected, so if it's starting to become constricted or if they're driving and they couldn't see a car come around the corner or, or overtake them. Mm -hmm. And also they may ask about a patient's colour vision to see if there'd been any subtle changes. If the patient struggles to differentiate, for example, navy blue from black or different shades of red and orange. Um, and once they've done that, they should ask um, quite a detailed history about the birth, um, uh, you know, and the pregnancy. So was the mother fit and healthy? Uh, did she suffer from any um, illnesses, infections? Was she taking any medications during the pregnancy? Um, was the birth fine? Was the child uh, premature or full term? And then they'll go on to ask questions about the family history, which is really key to see whether or not anyone else uh, in the family has been affected, any other brothers or sisters, uh, mother, father, aunts and uncles, and also um, whether any of the um, elders in the family were related to one another, because there can be sharing of um, the gene pool, which can lead to certain um, genetic conditions. So these are really important. And then once they've taken a really good history, they should move on to then examining the patient. And so they would check your vision and you would look at uh, various uh, letter charts so that they can measure that. Um, they'll do some standard checks, measuring pressure, etc., of the eyes, looking at the front chamber, making sure there's no signs of any cataracts, uh, that's cloudiness of the lens in the eye. Um, and then they'll move to the back of the eye. And if this is an inherited retinal disease, then both eyes are usually affected and it's quite a symmetrical um, appearance. And there are some characteristic signs at the back of the eye. For example, there may be um, specks of black or brown pigment um, on the surface. Um, the blood vessels can be slightly thinner. Uh, you can sometimes get some white dots and the nerve that sends signals to the brain can sometimes be a bit and paler in these patients. And so they'll do a, a proper examination and then you can go on to have um, some imaging tests of the back of your eyes, certain scans. Mm -hmm. um, now these scans can be done uh, on, by any ophthalmologist that sees you. These are not necessarily specific to um, a genetic consultant. Uh, so one of the main scans that would be done 
is something called an OCT, optical coherence tomography. And that uses infrared light to take an optical section of the back of the eye. And it allows us to see almost the cell layers of the retina mm -hmm. in higher resolution than you would do with the kind of naked eye. There's another uh, test called fundus autofluorescence where you get a really bright blue light flash in your eye. Mm -hmm. um, if you've had it, you would remember it. Yeah. Um, but it's a very strong flash of light. And that allows us to see if the underlayer of the retina um, is struggling and if there are signs of disease in that layer that, that may be causing these symptoms. Um, further tests that can be done are visual fields where we ask the patient to focus on a central white dot um, and then there are little flashes of light that flash up around the peripheral parts of your vision and you have to press a button and it allows us to see how well you detect the light in those areas. And in, in patients with retinitis pigmentosa, they often have a, a constricted field of vision and so they would miss a lot of those dots, but they would be able to see quite well centrally. Mm -hmm. And then there are some specialised tests which may not be done at these hospitals. Um, and that's at that stage, I think a general ophthalmologist and a, definitely a medical retina specialist would know whether or not this is a, an inherited retinal disease or if this is uh, another type of, of retinal condition like diabetes or age-related macular degeneration. If they thought this condition had a genetic basis at that point, it would be wise for the, the ophthalmologist ophthalmologist to refer to a specialist like myself. So there are centres across the UK at Moorfield, Southampton, Manchester, Leeds, where we have specialists, Oxford is another one, uh, where we're working specifically focused on seeing patients with genetic eye diseases. Mm. And when we see our patients, we repeat these kind of tests that I've mentioned, but the extra tests that the patient gets will be something called electrophysiology. And this is where we attach uh, little wires to the head in various places and uh, around the eyes. And then we flash lights and we get the patient to look at checkerboards, patterns, and we can measure the, the um, activity of the retina uh, going back to the brain. And by doing that, we can identify whether or not patients actually have any retinal defects, any nerve defects, and what kind of condition it may be. If we confirm that this is a, a likely inherited retinal disease, then we would go on to do genetic testing. And this is key for this cohort of patients. This is because um, there are now over 250 genes that we know cause uh, inherited retinal diseases. There is now the first approved gene therapy available on the NHS for patients with a certain mutation. And there are a number of clinical trials coming through that may provide potential treatments to these patients in the future. So genetic testing is key. The important thing to bear in mind is that the actual genetic test isn't, it's a blood test, um, but it's not like, for example, measuring your iron levels or white blood cell count where you get a result in a couple of days. Mm. Um, genetic testing takes a long time. It can take up to six months, sometimes more depending on the type of test we do. Um, and it's because 
we have to screen all those 250 genes. We have to pull out any single change um, that may be found and go through with absolute detail on whether or not that potential change could be um, disease causative or could it just be a normal variation seen in a lot of other people and, it, and it's insignificant. Because when we give you that diagnosis, that diagnosis is, is more or less for the rest of your life and will give you access to research and trials moving forwards. And we wouldn't want anyone to have that wrong diagnosis. Yeah. Um, obviously, um, children, it's a slightly different process. Um, when, you, when a child uh, presents with difficulties with their vision, again, they would be referred into the hospital to see a paediatric ophthalmologist, um, someone who specialises in children. Again, they would assess the patient. The, the child would still have the same, the, the, or the parents would be asked the same history as an adult. Um, and a key emphasis on the symptoms and the family and the birth history. They then have their vision checked by someone called an orthoptist, who is a specialist that can measure children's vision. They then go on to have the eye exam with the ophthalmologist. Um, and now we can also undertake a lot of those imaging tests that I mentioned in adults in children too. Uh, we have special um, technicians who can take pictures of the back of children's eyes. Um, but it depends how um, compliant the child is, but, but usually we, we get very good images from them. And again, um, if they're found to have a genetic condition, then they should equally be, be referred into um, doctors like myself, um, who can then uh, put all the kind of pieces of the, the puzzle together and um, provide the correct management. So again, we would do genetic testing, we would make sure that the child um, sees a paediatrician because for a lot of these conditions, 50% um, of children may actually develop problems in the rest of their body. And so it's important that we rule these things out. Once we have an adult patient, they will tell us, no, we're fit and healthy. There's nothing else wrong with us. But with the children, it could still be something that may be developing. And so we need to make sure that a paediatrician checks them and make sure that they're okay and that they're developing well and that they don't need any extra support. We also introduce the family to the family support services who will put them in touch with qualified teachers of the visually impaired that will make sure that their education setup is all um, ready for them mm. for when they start school. And you can, you can start those um, processes from the very first time you come to the hospital, you don't have to wait until your child is about to go to school for that. Yeah. Um, after you see um, a specialist like myself, and we've gone through all of this, and we've done the genetic testing, uh, you will also um, go and see a genetic counsellor. And that's the same for both uh, children and adults. The genetic counsellor is really key because Again, a lot of these families will want to know how this has happened, um, if they have a chance of passing it to another child, if they wanted to have another child. Um, for the individual, for the adult, if they were going to get married and have children, they would have those similar concerns. And so the genetic counsellor can sit and go through the inheritance patterns 
with the family. They can talk about family planning options. And there are a number of those. Interesting. It really is. And um, so am I right to assume that depending on your um, results that you would automatically be referred to see a specialist or like a genetic counsellor? Or in many cases, can you self-refer yourself? Like, How does the process work for anyone's listening and hasn't actually seen one, but know they have an inherited sight loss? How can someone um, ask to be seen um, by a genetic counsellor? Yeah, so actually, unfortunately, that is the case for quite a few people that they haven't had the next referral step to see um, a, a specialist in genetic eye disease. Um, there, are, there are a couple of options. Um, first of all, if they're seeing their local ophthalmologist and they feel that they haven't had access to someone like myself um, and they need genetic testing because this is an inherited condition, then they could ask their ophthalmologist to refer them to somewhere like Moorfields or their nearest um, tertiary referral centre where they have uh, genetic input. Um, alternatively, um, the individual can go to their GP and they can ask the GP to refer them again to those places directly. Um, there should be no reason why the GP has any restrictions in doing so. Um, I have had some patients in the past um, where I've told them to go to their GP and the GP has um, worried that you know, there would be funding issues related to them having to pay for genetic testing, etc. And I've written a letter back to the GP to explain the situation that, for example, Moorfields covers the cost of genetic testing mm -hmm. um, and that this is important for the family, one, so that they understand the cause of their disease, secondly, for family planning, um, to access genetic counselling and to access uh, clinical trials. So the, the, this is no longer an area where it should fall into a research category. This is NHS care and it's everybody's right to access the right services that they, they need for, for proper management of their conditions. That's really useful and good to know because I speak to many people, again, like you said, um, haven't been referred, but when they go to GP, they're a little bit hesitant because um, they themselves are not, you know, specialise in those areas and sometimes it's good to know this information that patients can actually take back to their GP um, and also I just one question as well um, I you know I got my genetic testing um, about two three years ago and my results took longer um, it took mine took three years but just to reassure listeners out there that it, it doesn't really mean anything different if yours takes three to six months or if it takes two to three years um, and sometimes results can come inclusive am I correct in saying that correct yeah yeah so you're absolutely right so um, if we even look back kind of in the last five years five to ten years um, genetic testing wasn't always funded by the NHS it was sometimes part of research studies um, that were funded by charities like Retina UK. And so these were left to kind of researchers to delve into the genetics and find the causes, and it, and it could take a long period of time. We recently had a very big study nationally called the 100,000 Genome Project, which offered patients with rare diseases 
a chance to have something called whole genome sequencing, which is where we can look at all 3 billion letters of your genetic code and all 20,000 of your genes. Now, a test like that compared to a test that looks for 250 genes mm -hmm. is obviously going to take longer because there's more data, but it, it gives a higher degree of information um, for us to identify what's going on. So yeah, in the past, there, it, you know, especially research tests took quite some time. And with research tests, you often have to validate those results, which add on a few more months. Now, we're very lucky in the NHS, we have these tests that are available. Um, they're done by NHS accredited laboratories. They're given a certain turnaround time. Um, obviously, if, if there are times when there's a, a high workload, um, then tests can take longer to get results back. But that's not because there are problems with that individual's blood test. That's just the nature of the workload. But on average, it takes about six months to get a, a genetic result back. Um, and you're absolutely right. Sometimes the results will come back with what we call no primary findings. So they couldn't absolutely say that this was the cause of your condition. Now, sometimes they just couldn't find a cause from the genes that they looked at. That doesn't mean it's not genetic. It just means we haven't identified your gene yet. And so, as I said, we know 250 genes that cause retinal diseases, but there are 20,000 genes out there. And so there's still a lot of discovery to be made. And on average, a person with an inherited retinal dystrophy has a 60 to 70% chance of getting a diagnosis. So 30% of patients will still get this kind of negative result, which means they would need more testing in the future to look for, for their cause. Sometimes they say, we couldn't say for certain that this was the condition, but they did find a change. But the reason they couldn't say for certain is because that particular change in that gene has never been described in any other patients before in the world. And so usually for us to be able to say for certain that this is causing your disease, we need at least two unrelated families to have the same disease change and the same clinical features to be able to say for certain. And so what genetic labs are doing is that they keep your results and they constantly do checks every, every so often. And if someone else is found to have that change, they can sometimes upgrade your report. And so for some people, you may be contacted later to say, that change that we found, we've now got more evidence and actually this is the cause of your condition. Mm. So we have to, as I said um, earlier in, in the podcast, we have to be very careful before we absolutely deliver a genetic result. We would never want you to have the wrong result. And so we are quite cautious um, when we look at your reports and we, we issue them. That's really useful to know because I know when people are waiting for these results, it gets quite anxious and people get worried. So it's really good to have the explanation of why. Um, it's the first time it's been ever explained to me, so I'm sure the listeners will find it very useful. I just want to say thank you, um, Professor, for coming on today and sharing um, your knowledge, your experience, your... Um, passion, I, I must add, um, and, and explaining it so eloquently for the listeners. I'm sure it's been really informative. And we will be speaking to Eleanor, who will go a little bit more into the genetic side of it. So we'll be speaking to her next. 
Thank you so much, Maria. Thanks, Bavini. Thank you. Next, we'll be joined by Eleanor, who is working in the area of genetic counselling. And it will be quite interesting to know exactly what a genetic counsellor does, why you would see a genetic counsellor and at what stage. Eleanor, welcome. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, thank you very much. It's nice to be here. Would you like to um, formally introduce yourself? Sadly, my name is Eleanor Schiff. I'm a genetic counsellor and I have a background in research in genetics in different types of um, genetic conditions, what are both called Mendelian, where it's just one gene that causes the condition, or complex genetics as well, where there's lots of different genes and environmental factors as well. Um, and I've been working as genetic counsellor in Moorfield Eye Hospital um, since December 2018. Wow, interesting. So just picking up from what Maria sort of said, so um, when, when would someone be actually referred or when would the ophthalmologist sort of say that, you know, now it's the time to come and see a genetic counsellor? Um, so when the ophthalmologist recognises that um, the person has what could be a genetic condition, sometimes they're not sure that it's a genetic condition, but there is an indication that it is a genetic condition. So at that point, they would be offered to see a genetic counsellor. And, and the genetic counsellor would help them understand what it means to have a genetic cause to their condition. Um, and then there's a lot of other things that they would go into, what, what the risk might be to other family members. Down the line, there could be flat family planning options that they would discuss. And also to clarify what the genetic cause is exactly to go down the route of genetic testing as well. Okay, so, um, so there is, it's quite a detailed process. And is it, is it something that someone may see a genetic counsellor once? Or um, do, do, is it quite a frequent process? So in, in ophthalmology, which is not a general clinical genetic service, so we usually see the patient the first time when, when it's indicated that what they have could be genetic. And in that, that first time, we'd go through genetic inheritance just so that they understand how it all works. You know, DNA, that we have DNA inside all of our cells and we the DNA is on chromosomes and we have our genes on these chromosomes. And each gene is like um, a recipe to the body or an instruction to the body to make a certain protein or an enzyme. And if one of those genes is not spelt correctly, then that can cause a condition. And then all the different inheritance patterns, because, because that can have different implications and different risks. Um, so that in the first session, that's what we would talk about as well. And we talk about genetic testing, what the benefits are and what the implications are or, or you know, what the, what, not, not exactly the downside, but what the limitations are as well of genetic testing. And it is good if they have some time to consider that. It's not always so, so straightforward, depending on the person and the age and, and the implications for themselves and their family, um, if they want to go ahead. And that's something we would also go through, which I can talk about in more detail um, um, later. Mm. But it is, that is something we would also go through in the first um, session. And if genetic testing was done, then we would see the patient again when the result came through. It, ideally, we would see the patient and go through the result. Um, they might receive a letter first, but then in their next clinic visit, they would 
either the ophthalmologist or the genetic counsellor would go through the actual result with them again and again explain what it means, that pattern of inheritance and who's at risk. And, and they can always call. We always give our, um, our number and our emails. So often, you know, patients have so much information in one session and then they go away and think about it and have a million questions. So they can always get in touch with us and we can go through it again. Um, it, is, it, is a, it is a process and a process of understanding what the implications are and it, has, it does have um, psychological and emotional and sociological implications. So, so we are there as a support for all of that and to provide the information so really they can make an informed decision about any genetic testing that they want to do. Yeah. Um, so do, would you say in your experience, typically, if someone, there was a family that had the same, um, you know, eye condition, would they typically have the same genetic coding or does it, is it completely unique to individual? So first of all, there's, there's hundreds of different genes that can cause inherited eye diseases, inherited eye conditions. Um, and even within a certain type, for instance, just retinitis pigmentosa, there's lots of, there's different, there's many different genes that can be inherited in different ways. Mm. But even within, if you pick a certain gene, all the people who have changes in that gene, they won't all have the same change. Right. And so we don't always know, that's one of the, the, um, the, the limitation parts, is we can't necessarily predict from a change that somebody will have, we can't predict how severe it will be or what the pro- what the prognosis is going to be or how it's going to progress. With certain dis- genes, we know that it's non-progressive and we know it's stationary, but with others, we don't know where the progression is going to be. So we give as much information as we can, yeah. but we can't. They're, they're, you know, they're often people will ask, well, you know, what does this mean? Am I going to go blind you know, very soon? And we can't really give that information because we don't know it because there are so many other factors as well that are involved yeah that was going to be my, my next question actually what what is detected from you know getting your results that what what are you able to pick out so from what you've already said um <clears throat> that sounds quite interesting but it, yeah i guess the um i guess what 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 the actual um, results could be could be different in so many variations so I guess it's quite a complicated it sounds like a complicated process and it can vary from person to person in 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 terms of the length of the time you get your results I take it yes yeah so the results again depending on the type of testing that we've done and which laboratory we've sent it to and what the backlog is it can take it can take a few months or it can take um, almost a year. Um, usually it takes around six months. Um, sometimes if we've found the genetic cause because we've tested for a whole panel of genes that cause a specific inherited retinal condition or something like that, um, we've tested just a panel of genes and we get the results. Then we might test relatives as well to see if they carry this change or if, if they're at risk or depending on the pattern of inheritance, which I can talk about soon. Um, and if we're testing a specific change from what's called familial testing, so we know what the change is that we're looking for in that family, so we're just testing that change, then that is much shorter. Mm-hmm. That should be just a month or two to get that result. Okay. 
And how often do uh, how long do you keep the results? So for example, so if you know you hear that you know someone was diagnosed with um I don't know star guts or something say fifteen years ago, but then you know now uh fifteen years later they 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 may see a consultant that might feel that the the condition actually could be slightly different. Would would it be something that you you know? they may have done a genetic testing before and that could can confirm the actual condition. Can it be used for something like that? Yes, definitely. If any genetic testing will give an indication of what the condition is. Um, so, for instance, if they'd had genetic... If, if they were diagnosed as having Stargardt and then much later on we were to do genetic testing and then we, if we found changes in the ABCA4 gene, that would confirm that it definitely was Stargardt's um, disease, but sometimes we might it might have been a bit ambiguous, and we do genetic testing and we find something else. But um, if it's not ambiguous, genetic testing will confirm what the condition is, and that's helpful. So you know, reasons people might do genetic testing. One reason is to know of all the different genes that can cause a condition. If they know which gene it is, so that's going to give them more information and learn more about specifically that gene related to the condition that they have. It will also tell um, the person what the inheritance pattern is because different genes are inherited in different ways. So if it's, um, I don't know if Maria spoke about this, but genes can be inherited in what's called a recessive way or a dominant way or an X-linked inheritance pattern. And all of those have different implications for the risk to, to the next generation or to siblings and to other family members. Um, so that's what genetic testing will also inform us about what the what the risks are going to be because we'll know what the inheritance pattern is and then I suppose the third reason is because hopefully uh, with some genes already there are clinical trials and as you probably know even with um, a gene called RP65 Mm. um, there's actually a kind of form of gene therapy in patients who have um, very early onset retinal dystrophy or labors congenital amaurosis but there are trials going on which are not treatments they are trials but it is the first step for many different genes and if we know what the gene is we know what the genetic change is then we would put that onto our database so that as soon as there is a relevant trial and certainly a treatment we would be able to contact the person and let them know um, because that would be relevant if they're eligible yeah, no, great. That's what I was going to ask. Ness. so how, how do people actually get involved in trials? Do they have to be part of a different database or do you contact them directly? So that's really useful to know. Um, thank you. This has been quite interesting and informative um, and it will be something that, you know, will be great to pick up in more detail in future podcasts. But just want to say thank you, Eleanor, for giving up your time today to informing us about genetic counselling, who it's available to. And as we've heard from... Thank you. And as we heard from Maria earlier, you know, um, your consultant should either refer you um, or if you haven't been ever asked to see a genetic counsellor or get your genetics um, testing done, then it's something that you can request from your GP. Um, Do you get many patients being self-referred from a GP or is it just sort of a natural process from the eye hospital? Right. So in Moorfields, we're part of the... Um, the ophthalmology genetics service so a patient a patient would be referred to the to one of the um, 
consultants through their GP and then we would see them as part of that clinic. If somebody wanted to see a genetic counsellor independently, um, they would get a referral from their GP to a clinical genetic service. Mm-hmm. And there are local clinical genetic services. And if, they, if, they, if it wasn't through the ophthalmology clinic, then that's how they would go about it. Um, we also refer patients to clinical, their local clinical genetic services if they um, want to consider certain reproductive options because um, we might talk through the reproductive options with patients. If, for instance, two, a couple both carry a change um, in a gene, a recessive gene, and that would mean that they are carriers, they're not affected themselves because we all have two copies of the genes that are on the autosomes, which mm-hmm. is 22 of the 23 chromosomes so they would um, that would mean that there's a one in four risk of their child being affected with that condition so they may consider um, various reproductive options one of which is um, pre-implantation genetic diagnosis and that needs to be done that's form of IVF um, where only a, a, an unaffected fertilized egg is re-implanted mm. So that would be done through a local clinical genetic service. So they might see us first through the ophthalmology clinics. um, And then this would be one of the things we would discuss. And if they want to take that further, we would refer them on to their local clinical genetic service. So I, in Moorfields, in answer to your question, in brief, I only would see people who've been referred by their GP to the ophthalmology clinic. They might want to be seen because they want genetic counselling. Um, so they would be seen by the ophthalmologist and by myself as well. Fantastic, thank you. It's been really informative. Um, Thank you, Eleanor. Pleasure. So next we're going to speak to Jessica Price, who, um, well, I first met Jess when she used to work as an ECLO, an eye clinic liaison officer, Um, and I did some voluntary work uh, with Jess almost four years ago, but... Jessica will talk about her role now and um, what it typically does, um, how people can reach the service, the different services um, uh, an ECLO provides and how you can get in touch with them and where they're based actually. Um, so good morning Jess, how are you? Morning Gazina, I'm good thanks, how are you? I'm not too bad, thank you. Um, so Jess, would you like to elaborate on your role um, and how you've kind of, what you're doing now and typically what is an eye clinic liaison officer? Yeah, of course. So firstly, thanks for having me on here, just to spread the word of ECLOs. Um, today I'm going to briefly speak about the role of the ECLO and that actually stands for eye clinic liaison officer, but we abbreviate it to ECLO. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, ECLO's bridging gap between health and social care while situated in the eye clinics. So although being in the eye clinics, ECLOs have strong links with community groups, local authorities, just to continuously work on improving pathways in and out of the hospital in terms of support for when you leave. Um, ECLOs are there ultimately to support people with any degree of sight loss and any referral can go to an ECLO at any stage of a patient's diagnosis. So it could be initially, it could be um, as their sight starts to deteriorate further. It could be that they just need to, to digest the information that's been given to them. 
Mm. And patients don't have to rely on a referral from a clinical member of staff either. They can self-refer to us, and I'll go into a bit more detail how patients can do that towards the end okay. um, this morning. Um, so at close, oh, so they support patients, but they also are there to support family, friends, carers who also may need support and may need to just understand the person's eye condition and how they can help best help them. Um, they can provide emotional support. So if you have been given bad news at your appointment and just need someone to sit with you and listen and help you digest the information given to you, always call on an ECLO for support. Um, we can help digest the diagnosis information. So just helping you understand the eye condition better. So an example may be if he was diagnosed with glaucoma and um, just breaking down the importance of actually putting your drops in because sometimes patients are given drops and they don't actually understand what the drops are going to do, why they need to take them, you know, for a long period of time. So an ECLA can step in and just break that down, but not in medical terms. So something that patients can understand more. Um, and then they can also help patients to make sure that they're putting the drops in correctly. So a lot of our ECLOs have been trained by our pharmacy teams on showing patient techniques and actually putting the drops in themselves. So not having to rely on family members or carers to do it. You know, that's quite empowering to be able to do that yourself and being able to do it correctly. Mm -hmm. so ECLOs can support you with that. Um, ECLOs can provide practical support. So giving information on how to receive mobility training, cane training, um, information about visual aids to help you with daily tasks, such as lighting, um, colour contrasting plates, cutlery, chopping boards. They can inform you on technology that can support with tasks, such as reading. And you can get various different apps on your mobile phones to help read signs, documents, recipes. So they're all small things that can help support that person's um, daily living, basically. It doesn't stop there as well. So at close can signpost patients to various organisations for support. So all the different sight loss charities, um, access to work for support. So if you're in employment and you need your employer to help you understand your visual impairment a bit better to make sure you've got the resources that you need in order to do your job. Um, technology support, living with sight loss workshops, the list goes on. Basically, ECLOs will support you as much as they can. And if it's something that they don't cover, they will always find someone that's able, they'll signpost you out to someone that's able to support you in that field. Um, I'm just going to touch on the CVI process. So um, not all ECLOs across the UK manage the CVI process, but at Moorfields, all our ECLOs manage the CVIs locally. So CVI ultimately stands for um, Certificate of Visual Impairment. And some people may know this as a BD8 form. That's what it was previously called. Um, it's basically a medical document. Um, it's issued to you by your consultant ophthalmologist um, only if you meet the criteria for either sight impaired or for the, um, severely sight impaired. And that is determined by your consultant ophthalmologist. Um, and you'll have various different tests like the visual field test, um, visual acuity test. And depending on what your eye condition is, depends on um 
what level of, and obviously your deterioration in sight depends on what level of the criteria you will meet. Um, some patients are reluctant to go through the CVI process just because they think that it's the, this is where the door closes and that they'll be discharged from the hospital. And I just wanted to take this opportunity to say that is not the case at all. I always say to patients that the CVI actually opens doors for support. So um, just as an example, if a patient does consent to a copy of their CVI, go to the local authority, then their local authority have a duty of care to offer support via the sensory impairment team who can do a home assessment and support you ultimately to live an independent life with the right tools and skills that you may need. Mm-hmm. Um, in a nutshell, ultimately ECLOs are on hand in the eye clinics to ensure you are supported when you leave the hospital. Um, just making sure that you've got the right tools, equipment, knowledge to live an independent life at home in the community and ultimately to empower people to um, do what they want to do and not feel that because they've lost some of their sight that it's a barrier because there's so many amazing inspirational stories that people have gone on to do amazing things and I just feel that with the help of an ECLO people can get to that you know it may take some time um, it's a lot of character building and building people's confidence but if you look at ECLOs to be your link person within the hospital, um, you can always come back to them. It's it's never just, you're just referred and that's it. Um, we've got nine ECLOs covering more fields and I'll list the sites in a second. Um, but they're always available to support people um, as and when they need it. Um, so the nine, we've got nine ECLOs and they cover City Road, um, Croydon Hospital, St George's, Northwick Park, Ealing, Potter's Bar, Bedford, Barking, St Anne's, Mile End, St Ludwig Goodman, Damp Valley and the Richwood Desmond Children's Centre as well. Um, I just wanted to note as well that ECLOs are not always visible in the clinics and it's definitely something we're working on and because of that sometimes clinical staff may miss the opportunity to refer you onto an ECLO so if this is the case and you do need this support, please just ask any clinical member of team to see an ECLO. Um, and more fields, all the ECLO's contact details are on our website. And if you attend another eye mm-hmm. clinic, please ask if your clinic has an ECLO. And if not, please campaign to get one in there because they are so important um, in the pathway. Um, just as important in my view as a consultant ophthalmologist because you know a patient can be given all the information, but to then digest it and get the support they need to then live an independent, empowering life. I feel like you need that close encouragement and support for that. Yeah, completely agree. I wholeheartedly agree with that. Um, and it's great to know that, you know, just because you've seen an ECLO once, that's, that's not it. You know, you can go back to them at different points of um, yeah. your sight loss journey, as it were. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's fantastic to know. And, you know, I know many people who've actually um, spoken to a ECLO just for comfort, comfort, reassurance, just to get mm-hmm. a little bit of emotional support because it is a devastating emotional journey, especially the first time you get that diagnosis. It's like your world's just fallen apart, especially if it's... Yeah 
a shock. It's you're the first um, in your circle of friends, perhaps family, to get that diagnosis. It's a lot to take in. Um, and having that access to a Neclo um, does make a difference. Um, thank you, Jess. Thank you yeah. so much for no, explaining that. No, that's okay. That. I'm just going to add on that, Davine. Yeah. So, you know, sometimes, like you mentioned, if you are given a diagnosis and you're in shock, and sometimes, you know, clinical staff will give you all the information that you need because you need that information. You need to understand your diagnosis and what's happened but an ECLO won't just see you for the set of eyes that's in front of them they look at a patient holistically and they you know we're very patient-centered so when a patient comes into us we can kind of assess if it's too soon you know the consultant will normally give us a bit of a, a background as to what's been said during that consultation and an ECLO will not bombard you with information if we don't feel it's appropriate at that stage so that's why we always leave the door open. Yeah. You know, we may give you some contact details or even our contact details and say, look, when you're ready, give us a call um, and then we can take it from there. And some people it can take weeks, months, even years. Um, I've had a patient before who didn't want to go down the CVI process and it took him three years to actually, I think, accept that his site had deteriorated to that level mm. um, and three years later he was then ready for that support so it can take some time but during that time it closer there at any single stage fantastic yeah and we will in a future podcast discuss all about a cvi uh, you know bd8 that it was known formally um mm. and you know what that can mean to someone um because even myself i think i was reluctant because i think it for me it was having that label um of blindness yeah. or disability that i didn't want other people to know but actually um once you get into that right um space uh, and understand what it can do for you it, you know mm. it can open up your doors like you said to much more support so yeah we will discuss that in a future podcast um, just to raise sort of awareness about that and what it can mean. Right. Um, thank you, Jess, so much. That's okay. So next, we're going to come to Sabina. Sabina um, works for Friends of Moorfield, um, and she's actually based inside uh, Moorfield's Eye Hospital at City Road. Welcome, Sabina. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, Vivi. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Thank you for joining us here today. And I thought it would be a good opportunity to sort of raise awareness about Friends of Moorfields and exactly what where you you're based, um, and exactly mm -hmm. well, you know, what kind of services do you provide, and how can people reach you? Sure, absolutely. So um, I've been in post now for two and a half years. I'm in health hub. The service it provides has been going on for about two and a half years now. So prior to that, the health hub was, as you say, was from the main entrance of City Road, and it was just a, an area where they displayed a few of Moorfield's information leaflets and a selection of um, leaflets from other charities and organisations. Patients were free just to come around and browse in the area and just take away, if they wanted anything, to take away anything off that they thought was useful to them. Um, so um, the chief executive of Friends of Moorfields, Angela Smith, came up with this idea that this area was really not being really utilised in the best way and it would be really beneficial for patient experience and for the service the trust provides to have someone who is full-time 
a trained ECHO and who had a sector knowledge where patients could just come. Um, also, if they wanted just to browse on their own, or if they had the option also to speak to somebody who could then signpost them to their support and information. Um, so we work very hard to sort of create this information hub that has that we had um, really wanted to. So I came into post work full time, and um, obviously networked with different organisations and really sort of updated the information hub. So at present now, it's a designated area where patients can come. Um, I can list them, I can have a chat with them, but it, it really sort of gives an, an environment which is informal and relaxed and I think more importantly, non-medical. Mm-hmm. So um, in terms of how patients would come um, and see me, many patients will come um, past and just think, oh, is there something here that I could of interest for me and obviously the conversation starts and at present because of the one-way system patients on their way out of the hospital will always go past the hub so there's all the opportunity there is always there so that's really good um many times uh, members of staff have often said there is a health information hub you know so being up there um, on the way out you can go and see her consultants often prefer patients to me or stay for somebody in the low vision clinic one of the ophthalmologists um, or optometrists will walk out and just um, direct patients to the hub and I can sort of um, just help them um, listen to what they what they want, what information, really sort of cater to what they are actually asking for as opposed to just giving them some random information that they might have just picked up, mm. really. So, yeah. And of course, as I said, I am a trained ECLO. Uh, my role is health hub support officer, but I am a trained ECLO and as Jessica explained, um, I can give all the services and all the support and emotional support and practical support that ECHO does within the health hub. Um, I have a team of volunteers who work alongside with me um, to provide the service um, of the health hub. Okay. Um, these volunteers have, um, um, lots of them have lots of um, experience with engaging with um, the public. Many of them have academic qualifications and just want to further their knowledge of ophthalmology. They also want to learn about the sector um, and how uh, visually impaired people are um, supported in the environment and community. Um, and a lot of them themselves um, have um, eye conditions themselves, um, so they can also talk about their experiences they may have with the patients. Um, as well as that, uh, more fields produce an array of information leaflets. Um, they're very informative and comprehensive. A lot of work goes into producing them, whether it's through the consultants, um, clinical staff, and various departments within the hospital. So I can also signpost patients who may have eye conditions that are treatable and just want to know some more information about their own um, treatment or their eye condition or general eye care health. So really the health hub really cases for um, the, all the all case for all the needs of the patients of um, patients that come to City Road at Northfields. Yeah, and um, just to sort of ask a question, so from what I gather, you don't need to make an appointment. You literally can just drop in. Absolutely. I mean, it's very visible. It's you know the last sort of area that you would come to on the left hand side. Um, they patients can just come up on themselves and come and see me at any time, even if they haven't got time and they 
they're coming back again in a few weeks. So, you know, I would say to them, if you haven't got time today, come back for your next appointment. Mm. But there's no sort of formal route or pathway that they need to go through to come visit the hub. Yeah. <clears throat> and I myself have actually, um, you know, taken advantage of the brilliant service you offer, you know, after an appointment or because I quite work quite closely with Morpheus sometimes for meetings, I'll just mm-hmm. come and have a brief chat just about pers- my own personal eye condition or just, yeah. you know, just have a chat on how I'm coping and, the, and that's the beauty of it because sometimes you don't know who you can talk to and sometimes just having that sort of space um, the couch is very comfortable. The seat that you've got there is very cozy. That you know you can just feel really open. That you you can share, and that's the lovely part of it. Um, and I've also seen whilst I've been there that you give practical support. So people bring their phones, or um, you know sometimes you advise uh, on different sort of accessible technology, which is fantastic. Yeah. Um, I mean, is there I have a certain amount of technology actually in the hub, which I can actually demonstrate when someone says to a patient, perhaps you should try this app called Seeing AI. They don't really understand what it is until someone actually shows them. Mm. So I have Seeing AI on, on the smartphone in the hub, so I will show them, I'll have a leaflet, say, you know, this is what it does. And, you know, most of them are absolutely amazed by, you know, how wonderful it is. And Or even if they have their phone and say, well, I don't really use my phone very much anymore because I struggle to see. And it's just something as easy as changing the font size, which I can show them. Yeah how to do and they go away much more sort of in a positive way and thinking oh okay and I think that also leads to them almost to self-inquire on their own again because yeah. the positive sort of outcome of having that advice and support and information at the right time is really important I think to maintain people's independence. Definitely and you also run um, sort of certain events or workshops as well do you, do you want to just sort of briefly touch upon the ones you've run yeah. before? Yeah, absolutely. So in the past, we've um, held lots of events, um, including um, Rare Disease Day, Macular Week, obviously, you know, World Sight Day, we do that collaborative with the Trust, um, Eye Health Week, um, we had Genes for Genes Day, um, and even Diabetes Week, where I've had, you know, all, all outside organisations come in to speak to patients. We've had... Um, researchers and scientists come from the Institute of Ophthalmology come in to speak to patients, whether it's a rare disease or whether it's some genetic eye condition for genes for genes day, where they can talk about their work and really engage with the um, patients as well as staff, actually, because I think, as you said, Thereen, you know, because it's such an open space and the main thoroughfare, a lot of staff often come up and ask me about if I had the patient that's struggling with this particular, is there anything they can be they can advise and I think it's really important that we I kind of tell members of staff that there are options and if you see a patient you know you can just give them a little bit of advice perhaps which may then then if they want afterwards to come visit me they can so as you know and we've also done assistive technology workshops with um, um, blind and business our last one was really well attended and I really hope in the future to do many more like that again yeah <clears throat> yeah let's come out of this pandemic and hopefully next year we'll start you know, um, building on uh, workshops and uh, face-to-face yeah. events that will be great um, and any anyone listening you know obviously with both Jess and Sabina in their roles um, if you're a local society or a voluntary group 
or even another additional charity um, and you want your information to be shared, please get in touch with Jessica and Sabina because, you know, if they are aware of your service and um, the support you, you provide, they can sign patients that are more local to you. Um, equally, they do have information at the health hub at Moorfields and, you know, they do share um, your details to patients that may come along that could benefit so please do get in touch with them mm -hmm. and Sabina lastly just one last thing you mentioned about the yes. volunteers that you work with I find that quite incredibly fascinating so if there was someone out there listening that you know wondered how they could get involved and perhaps volunteer who would who would be the best person for them to get in touch with yeah, absolutely so friends of Moorfield the bulk of the work that we do involves um of recruiting and training volunteers to work within the trust and the satellite centres as well. So obviously previous to the pandemic, we had over 200 volunteers, active volunteers of all ages, whether they were students um, undertaking some ophthalmology, optometry, um, training at degree level, or people you know, who have retired and want to give something back to the community. Um, so if anyone is um, interested in volunteering, um, they can contact us at the Friends of Moorfields website. All the details are on there. Our volunteer leaflets also um, available on our website. Um, I just want to mention, obviously, because of the pandemic at the moment, um, we have to do a risk assessment on people if they want to volunteer currently. Yeah. Um, just to make sure that they're safe and they're obviously at no risk of, of um, or at risk of anything or anything that's detrimental to their own health. So absolutely contact us at Friends. We're very happy to, to hear from you. Amazing. Fantastic. Thank you both. Uh, thank you both for your time this morning and sharing about the role of an eye clinic liaison officer and um, raising awareness about friends of Moorfields. Thank you. Thank you, Evelyn. Thank you. So that's the end of podcast three. Hope you found it useful and beneficial and informative hearing about the range of speakers we heard from today. Please do share and subscribe with any family, friends or anyone else that you may feel that might benefit from listening to it. Thank you for listening and Podcast 4 will be out soon.